Hey, folks. Welcome to another edition of The Electables. Uh, it's Doug Thornell, and as always, I'm joined by my partner in crime, Adrian Elwad, uh, on Halfway Across the Country. But, Adrian, it's great to have you. How you doing? I'm great. Great. Great to be here. How's, how's Arkansas right now? Arkansas is great, although oddly it snowed last night, which is very strange. It's April 14th, and it snowed in Arkansas. But there's space here. Like I said last week, I've got space. I've got a large house. You know, I don't have to worry about, um, you know, encountering a lot of people. It's easy, to, it's easy to social distance here. So needless to say, I'm very happy to be here instead of my very small condo in Washington, D.C. So before we introduce our super special guest, uh, just some a bit of news in uh, the last uh, 24 hours. Uh, Bernie Sanders endorsed uh, Vice President Biden, um, and uh, this was done on a live stream. And I think it's it's it is I think important to point out, and people I I think so, a lot of people are missing this is that one Joe Biden became the presumptive nominee sooner than both Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. And he has also begun the process of unifying the party earlier than either of those two candidates. Um, so for, you know, for all of the folks out there who are sort of wondering, you know, asking questions about the Biden campaign and what's going on and how are they going to take on Trump and all that, I think just taking it into that, taking that into account is really important. Earliest presumptive nominee that we've had since uh, 2004, I believe, and the earliest time in which we've he's begun the process of unifying the party. I think it speaks a lot to the Biden campaign. Yeah, I, I do too. I do too, and I, I think it also speaks a lot to this moment that we're at right now. I mean, the party is so unified, like I've never seen before. Certainly more unified than we were in 2016. Um, you know, maybe you could compare 2004 to where we are right now, but people are so focused on being Trump you know, look no further to the results in Wisconsin, the fact that we won, we as Democrats won that contentious Supreme Court seat that Republicans thought they were going to win. Uh, we won it by six points. That was a huge victory. And I'm also excited because we've got Mark Elias on with us today, who has spent a lot of time um, working, um, w- you know, working, working cases and um, le- working legal lawsuits in some of these states on behalf of the Democratic Party that we are going to talk about today. So, Mark, we want to welcome you to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's uh, great to great to talk to the two of you again. Mark and Doug, is, you want to brag on Mark and kind of go through yes, his bio yes. and so, all the amazing things I, he's done? So, Adrian and I have Mark. Adrian and I have known Mark for years. Uh, he is the preeminent uh election law lawyer in the country on either side. He is the um, chair of the Perkins Coie Political Law Group. Uh, Perkins Coie is a very well-known, very well-respected law firm. Uh, Mark works for dozens of U.S. senators and governors. He represents many of the party committees. He was the general counsel to Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign in 2016, to John Kerry's presidential campaign in 2004. He's handled a uh, a number of cases involving uh, voting rights and redistricting, which I, is an area that I'd love to talk to him more about uh, today. Um, he's he's literally the you know he is you know the, at the top of this profession, 
And many Democrats who are in office and many of the party committees and many of the staffers for these campaigns and committees owe a lot to Mark uh, for all of the work he's done. He's been a, just a great champion on voting rights and um, just great to have him on. Uh, and uh, Mark, um, again, we appreciate you taking the time out of your day to jo join us. Um, Elrod, do you want to kick us off? Yeah. So, so Mark, I want to get your thoughts on, first and foremost, what just happened in Wisconsin? Uh, sort of put your political hat on and tell us about, you know, you were obviously very involved in Hillary Clinton's race in 2016 as her attorney uh, for the campaign. I worked very closely with you on a number of issues, but tell me what you, your thoughts are in Wisconsin. I mean, what does that mean for Democrats going into the fall? I mean, I think it's it's good news. I mean, you you know, we have the preliminary um, uh, results, um, and and you know, for those of those folks in the audience who didn't pay close attention, the Republicans uh, really pulled out all the stops to make voting very very difficult in Wisconsin. Um, they they refused to move the election day uh, so that more people could participate. They fought efforts to have um, increased uh, uh, voting. Um, there were only five polling locations open in all of Milwaukee. Normally, there are about 180 or so. So it was a very difficult uh, environment for voting. And yet, Democrats, we saw a, a, a real surge in Democratic turnout, and interestingly, a real a real um, lack of enthusiasm and lack of turnout among Republicans. So you know, uh, this is obviously very very good uh, very good news for the fall. And and in case anyone thinks it's because uh, Republicans didn't have anything to vote for. Um, the the real marquee race in Wisconsin was not the presidential because that was pretty well settled, uh, but it was a uh, state uh, Supreme Court race, which was uh, very very heavily spent on and um, uh, and uh, the subject of a lot of energy on both sides. So you know we saw a lot of um, uh, a very high turnout among Democrats and interestingly very very low turnout among Republicans. Uh, which I think is going to be that story. Mark, um, it looks like we're going to be headed for a big fight um, over vote, vote by mail, uh, especially if it's going to, especially if the conditions that we're operating under right now uh, either stay the same or just gradually get better. Um, so give it, given, uh, give us the landscape of where things are, and and um, what what is the GOP attack, legal attack on vote, vote by mail, um, or PR attack, and um, and what's our and what's going to be our response to the, to to push back? Yeah. So look, I think um, the first thing everyone needs to realize is that Republicans have been attacking voting um, from since well before COVID. And so the attack that Republicans have on voting um, is basically to make it harder for um, for uh, for people to vote early and for people to vote um, absentee. So uh, essentially, uh, they, they believe that they win um, if everyone has to vote uh, in person uh, during a defined period on election day itself. Um, and uh, on top of that, if you, when you add COVID on top of that, if you look at the reduction in polling locations, then they think they definitely win because there's a, because there's a, there's a, um, a, 
a density effect to COVID, which is that it hits uh, population more densely populated areas more heavily than it hits um, more rural areas. So, so that's basically the Republican plan: is that you make voting by mail um, uh, more onerous, you shut down as much early vote as you can, and you have fewer polling locations open in cities and more polling locations open in in rural areas. And that's 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 kind of what. Um, what we should expect. I mean, obviously, um, you know, the president himself has turned pretty aggressively to criticize um, uh, vote by mail um, precisely because it is the most logical relief valve for people who can't vote in person um, uh, or who uh, are are concerned about voting in person or are looking to vote in person to deal with long lines. And, and, and again, those long lines and those those problems are hitting um, urban centers more than they are hitting rural areas, and they are hitting particularly uh, young voters uh, uh, and minority voters harder uh, than the general population. So that's their plan. You know, from our standpoint, you know, we're we need to be for safe voting by mail, uh, safe and easy voting by mail, safe and easy voting uh, uh, early vote uh, and election day, um, because. You know, there are there are ways that states can and counties can operate early voting there uh, and they need to do so. There are ways that they can safely operate on Election Day and they need to do so. And and more and more people are going to vote by mail. More and more people were voting by mail even before COVID. So, um, you know, that trend is going to that trend is going to continue. And we need to make sure that that's that that there are not needless obstacles put in put in the way of people uh, uh, doing that. So, so Mark, I've got a two-part question here for you um, on that note. The first question is, why are Democrats, why is it more likely, I guess, that Democrats than Republicans tend to vote by mail or vote absentee? Like, why does this help Democrats? And then my second follow-up question to that is, how are the states doing in terms of implementing a vote-by-mail process? I mean, I know you're obviously more involved in the legal standpoint of things, but you're keeping close tabs on how some of the, especially the battleground states are making sure, to your point, that um, they're, they're implementing safe and easy um, processes to allow voting absentee or voting by mail, moving into the general, but kind of give us the landscape there. Like, how do you think the process is going? Are states in, you know, ahead? Are they behind? Where do you think that process is going? Yeah, so that's one of the things I, I worry about every day. So let's start with when we whenever we talk about vote by mail, we talk about the landscape. Let's start with the fact that the postal service is like set to run out of money in June. So, mm-hmm. uh, so you know, uh, uh, we the postal service, you know, it was facing economic problems before COVID, and COVID has dramatically increased them. Uh, and, you know, the president is playing politics with an appropriation to, to simply make sure the Postal Service, you know, is able to continue um, uh, its its normal function. Um, and, you know, the I, I, I assume that at the end of the day, you know, r- rural Republicans um, will not tell their constituents that they, you know, didn't they didn't appropriate right. money for the postal service because that's, you know, that's the upside. Uh, that's what we got going for us. <laughs> yeah, um, but that's the first hurdle. The second is that the state. When you start talking about the states, um, you know, the states are not um, 
are not ready. Most of the states, if you take out Oregon, Washington, Colorado, states like that that have all vote by mail, many of the battleground states. So when you look at like states like Pennsylvania and Michigan in particular, these are states that didn't traditionally have um, uh, no excuse absentee voting. Now they do really for the first time. Um, and, you know, they I worry about their capacity to handle the huge surge of mail balloting that that we're going to see. Um, and particularly uh, given um, the fact that, you know, all of the states right now are strapped for cash because of uh, because of the health impacts of covid. So, you know, the goal, hopefully, is to have Congress appropriate additional funds for the states so that they can uh, they can operate uh, the elections and, and, and all of the battleground states need that 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 money. But I'm particularly worried about the states that are newly implementing or are seeing dramatic expansions of vote by mail. And and like I said, the in particular, I would point to Pennsylvania and Michigan, um, maybe a little bit in North Carolina um, as well. Um, uh, and Wisconsin, obviously, based on what we just saw in Wisconsin. Mark, I think it's really important for our listeners to hear about some of the recent victories that uh, uh, we as a party have had combating voter suppression efforts. Um, uh, many of these fights you have been leading. Um, in particular, I just wanted to single out uh, Georgia. Uh, in March, I, there was a decision in Georgia that you were involved in. And then most recently, I believe just in the last day or two, New Hampshire, which may get appealed, but was an important victory nonetheless. Um, could you could you just talk a little bit about uh, those victories? And if there are others that have happened recently, I just think so, so many of these things happen and, no, and a lot of people don't realize just how aggressive the party is in combating these Republican efforts to make it harder for people to vote. Yeah, Doug, that's that's really a, an important point is that, you know, I'm happy that with COVID, uh, there is a greater focus on the importance of voting and voting rights and fighting voter suppression. But the truth is, Republicans were were um, were suppressing the vote long before uh, uh, COVID uh, and they'll be doing it uh, well after we have a vaccine. So the the Democratic Party and progressive um, allies have ha, came into this election cycle knowing that Republicans were going to try to change the laws and change the rules to make voting harder. And so, you know, starting, um, you know, really day one, um, the DCCC, the DSCC, the DNC, and then progressive allied organizations like Priorities, um, uh, like uh, the National Redistricting, National Democratic Redistricting Committee, you know, they they really started fighting voter suppression, you know, at the beginning of the election cycle, and you know, we've had a number of really significant victories. So you mentioned North, uh, you mentioned sorry, New Hampshire, you know, New Hampshire passed a series of laws to make it basically impossible for college students to vote. Um, we recently uh, won uh, this week won a court case strike down um, the domicile law that effectively made it impossible for students to to um, um, to register and vote in uh, in New Hampshire uh, we um, uh, we settled a long-standing lawsuit that we had won and uh, basically in, in Florida had passed a law that prevented early vote 
centers being uh, located on college campuses. So the, they were literally allowed to be on, in any public building other than on a university campus. Uh, so you couldn't have an early vote center at the University of Florida or Florida State, which is what was really targeted by this. We sued. We won. Uh, the Florida legislature, not to be deterred, then uh, passed another law that said, uh, okay, well, you can't have an early vote center on any any public um, any uh, public building where there's not um, uh, non-permitted parking, in other words, where there is permitted parking. Well, that, of course, was aimed again at the Reince Center, which is uh, one of the big student centers um, uh, and, you know, targeting the big universities in Florida. Um, we sued again, and uh, the Secretary of State uh, a, a few, a couple of weeks ago, just agreed to settle with us and 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 issued guidance that that said that uh, in fact you can, and they encourage the counties to open early vote centers in all of the uh, in on all the college campuses in in Florida. So that was a significant um, uh, a significant victory in Georgia. We had sued Georgia for. Uh, most people don't know that when you vote by mail um, and you put your ballot in the envelope, in the inner envelope, you then put it in the outer envelope, and then you usually sign the back of the um, of the outer envelope. When the reason why you sign that is that when it comes into the the election officials, they compare the signature on that outer envelope with the signature on file, usually your voter registration uh, signature, and if they deem it not a match. Uh, the signatures don't match, then they don't count the ballot. And in many states, they don't even tell you they didn't count the ballot. Um, and so uh, we settled a lawsuit that we had filed against Georgia because they uh, had a very, very antiquated and dis disenfranchising signature matching system. Um, and so Georgia agreed with us to update that. So we've had a number of recent, um, uh, a number of recent victories. Um, uh, that um, you know are going to make voting fairer and easier in the in the in the fall. Um, right now, we have twenty some odd lawsuits still pending um, in in thirteen states. So there's a lot more work to be done. But but this has been an ongoing effort that really began at the very beginning of the election cycle. And how many of them are uh, are you taking on specifically the Trump campaign, or is it generally like local state Republican parties or? What's so that? these are these are all right now aimed at the states. So they're challenging the state's laws. Um, I expect that as we get closer to the election, we will see more litigation involving voter suppression um, by Republican organizations, the Republican Party, uh, the RNC, uh, the Trump campaign. But this first round of lawsuits are really going at the structural problems, the problems where Republican legislatures have just passed uh, laws that make voting harder. Um, and then, you know, when we start to get to the the voter suppression activities that, that on the ground groups will do, then the litigation will shift. So, Mark, there's been a lot of interest and discussion, um, certainly in the Democratic Party and across the media as well, about whether Donald Trump and his and the power of the executive office, if he can legitimately and legally delay the November election in light of COVID-19. Can you sort of explain to us, explain to our listeners, like what are the chances, first of all, what are the chances of that happening? Um, and secondly, can you walk us through the process? How would that actually work? Yeah, it's a great question. It is literally the the number one most 
asked question I get. So to give you a sense of how much interest there is in this question. So I have a website, democracydocket.com, where I post information about all the cases we're litigating and also my my sort of thoughts and writings on, on various things. And so I wrote an, an article um, uh, or wrote an opinion piece for that website. So it wasn't published anyplace else for that website uh, about the question of whether or not Donald Trump could move the election. Um, and on the first day it was posted, it got 30,000 hits, which is oh, for my wow, little website. Wow. Yeah, right, which is a lot of traffic for my website. Um, so this is literally like the question everybody asks <laughs> is, can, mm-hmm. you know, can Donald Trump, can Donald Trump move the election? Can he cancel the election? You know, um, and the answer is no. So here is the deal. Um, the U.S. Constitution gives Congress the authority in congressional elections to set the time, place and manner of elections. In presidential elections, it gives Congress the authority to set the a uniform date for elections. Congress has exercised both of those powers. So it has passed two different laws, one which sets the Tuesday following the first Monday in November as the election day for president, one that sets the Tuesday following the first Monday in November as the day to choose members of Congress uh, and the Senate. So we will have federal elections on uh, November 3rd. Uh, there is there is no the governor can't move the, that the president can't move that. The only way that date can get moved would be by a new act of Congress. So it would require you know Nancy Pelosi and the Senate to agree on a new uniform date for president uh, and a new date for Congress. Uh, and then um, they would have to pass a new law and it would be signed by the president and then we would have that. That is, to say that that is extraordinarily unlikely is understating how unlikely it is. Uh, We are going to have a November 3rd election. And the only question is whether the, the, the processes for that November 3rd election will be up to the task of counting of allowing people to vote and counting votes and whether, you know, whether it's Donald Trump or it's Republican governors or legislatures, whether other actions will be taken that simply make voting harder. Um, You know, the analogy that I've used um, uh, to describe this is that Donald Trump can't cancel the census. You know, the census is in the Constitution. Mm -hmm. It has to happen. But he can underfund it. And he can make it so difficult that it it leads to a distorted result. And that's what I think his plan and the Republican plan is for November. They're not going to cancel the election. They can't cancel the election. By the way, as a backstop against all of this, the 20th Amendment to the Constitution says his term would expire either way. His term expires um, in January 2021. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think that what their plan is, is to simply make voting so hard. Um, for certain groups of people, people who live in cities, uh, minority voters, young voters, that what you wind up at the end of the day is not a turnout in the 55 to 58% range, which is what we've seen since 2004, but, but rather turnout that's substantially below that, that is highly distortive of what the electorate actually is. So, Mark, really quickly yeah, it- on that note. Doug, I just have a really quick follow-up question. Really quickly on yep. that note, you know, obviously, Mark, I know that you're very heavily, in fact, you're like the lead attorney on a lot of these um, and most election, um, you know, election law cases that we're dealing with here. But do you think, since you are so engaged in this, 
um, taking off your legal hat on, putting on your political hat, political hat, do you think that the Democratic Party um, ecosystem is prepared to, from a grassroots standpoint, standpoint to 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 activate against this, to make sure that we have um, the infrastructure in place to counter some of these voting suppression suppression efforts from the Re Republican Party and the Trump campaign? Like, do you think we are amply prepared on the Democratic Party side to do that? So I think the thing that we're that that I worry about, um, and which I don't know that anyone is prepared for or could have foreseen, is let's just assume that in the fall COVID is still with us, right? It may not be, it may not be peaking, but it's still here. Is how do you run a GOTV program? Like how do you actually? run the program that we normally would run of people knocking on doors and, you know, people, you know, reminding people of voting and, and, and doing, you know, um, uh, providing rides to the polls and things like that. How do you run that program in a world in which people don't want to be within six feet of each other? And so in that sense, I would say, no, we're not, we're, we're not prepared for it. Um, but I think that, that, Figuring out how that's going to work um, is is critical for us, you know, just as it's critical, like right now, you know, you look around the country and people are just not campaigning in this in 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 person. Right. Everything's being done by by Zoom or by video conferencing or telephone calls and like like mm -hmm. at some point, at some point, we're going to have to figure out how we run campaigns, whether it's you know, the candidate campaigning part or whether it's the GOTV part, like how is that actually going to work in the fall where there is some, co where COVID is still around? Um, uh, because, because no, I don't think we have a plan for how, how you do that. Mark, you, Mark, you're, um, as we've said, you're, you're one of the leading voting rights uh, champions in the country. Um, if you could just sit down and you had, you know, all the resources in the world and, and, you know, like sort of all the authority in the world to design the ideal and fairest voting process in America, what would it look like? That's a great question, Doug. And, and I'm glad you asked it because one of the things that I always tell, I get a lot of people come to me and they're like, will you promote this kind of voting system? Will you promote that kind of, will I support or promote that kind of voting system. What I tell everyone is that every voting system has winners and losers, right? And and we have to be honest and we have to acknowledge that. And we can't just act like there is a a system that doesn't benefit some voters more than other voters. And so if I were designing uh, what I would say is the most the best system, not necessarily perfect, but the best system, it would have um, it would have three components. The first is um, it would allow for at least uh, uh, 25 days of early vote, including weekends. Um, why 25 days? Because there's good, pretty good social science that shows that once that that at about the 23 day mark, uh, uh, you've you you get diminishing returns. So yes, Wisconsin, yes, Minnesota's got 45 days, and I wouldn't necessarily tell them they couldn't have 45 days, but but we know that around 20 around three weeks, a little over three weeks, you get diminished returns. Um, in early vote, and there are lots of people who prefer to vote in person. And early voting is the is 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 a really good and 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 easy.
easy and convenient way for them to do so. So number one, we'd have early voting that was um, that was that was that was at least three weeks and which um, uh, included uh, Saturday and Sunday in those for for all three weeks. Number two is I would have um, uh, election day voting um, where uh, where. Uh, you allow what's referred to as out of precinct or vote anywhere. Um, I would allow this also in the early vote period, um, uh, where you know you can show up at a uh, you can show up at a polling location as long as you're in the right county. Your vote counts. Whether you're in the little whether you're in the little red schoolhouse, the little blue schoolhouse, or the middle school or the elementary school, your vote counts, and you don't get disenfranchised by showing up at the wrong um, the wrong polling location. Uh, and then third, I would have vote by mail available for any voter who wants it. I'd send every voter in the jurisdiction application. I wouldn't send them necessarily a ballot um, because, like I said, some folks are going to prefer to vote uh, in person. But I'd send them an, an application that was easy to fill out um, and that had post, pre postage, free postage. Um, uh, and then when you have absentee balloting itself. Uh, I would ensure that number one, there's free postage. Uh, number two, uh, that ballots that are received, that are postmarked um, or in the postal service system by election day count, even if they're received afterwards. Um, I would uh, ensure that uh, if a state has a signature matching system, um, it uh, requires bipartisan election officials to deem a non-match uh, and gives the benefit of the, the tie or benefit of the doubt to the voter. And most importantly, if, they're, if they deem it a non-match, the voter has to be notified immediately by text, email, um, uh, and mail. Uh, and phone and is given an opportunity to confirm that it was their ballot by all of those means. So they should be able to call up and say, yeah, that was my ballot or text that was my ballot and have it count uh, on the same terms as anyone else. And then finally, um, I would allow community organizations um, uh, uh, to do ballot collection to make sure that uh, ballots get in. You know, people don't realize that that uh, uh, you know, very oftentimes Native American um, uh, Communities don't have um, uh, reliable mail service. Uh, that's also true uh, in some uh, uh, heavily uh, Hispanic areas, for example, in in Arizona. So it's so it's important that 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 community organizations can step in and fill that void where they have to. So those are the things that I would do. Um, and I think if if every state did that, you'd have a you'd have a very fair system. Now you're going to have some states like Colorado, Oregon, and Washington State that have all vote by mail, and those, that works for those states. But um, uh, so I wouldn't tell them they couldn't keep their systems. Um, but you know, as as you know. Uh, Doug and Adrian, you guys have worked politics all around the country. There are parts of the country where where voters prefer to vote in person and prefer to vote vote early in person, mm -hmm. and we can't we can't be we can't be taking that away from them. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, Mark, so my last final question for you is: Tell us how you got started in electoral, um, you know, legal work in this space. I mean, did you? decide when you were 10 years old that you wanted to be an election lawyer? Like, how did you get involved in this industry? No, I, it was by, <laughs> you know, sheer, I wish it was that planned out. No, it was largely by <laughs> by sort of a series of events. So I'll give you the 
32nd version. I graduated law school in 1993. Democrats lost control of the House for the first time in 40 years in 1994. Um, there was no real field like there is now, uh, election law or political law. Um, and in the mid, what people don't who, unless you lived it, what you don't remember about the about the 90s is everyone now thinks that the 90s was a time of of bipartisan uh, uh, love that you had Democrats and Republicans working together. In fact, it was the opposite. You had the Republicans were had gone after Bill Clinton and everything and everyone around him. There were independent councils everywhere. There were congressional hearings. There were all of all of this rancor uh in politics and and there became a really um uh, uh explosive need for lawyers who focused on politics and law because it was like the it was like this out of nothing this the emergence of lawyers in the political process just sort of took hold and i happened to be in the right place at the right time i was I was young. I was aggressive. I was very interested in helping Democrats in the House uh, uh, fight Newt Gingrich. And um, Dick Kephart was the leader and uh, uh, and David Bonier was the whip. And uh, so I did a lot of work with the DCCC, helping them uh, fight ethics, uh, fight, you know, play offense against Republicans, Newt Gingrich, Tom DeLay and the like. And then it just sort of spiraled from there. Politics became more and more became bigger and bigger and more and more uh, contentious and the law played a larger role. So that's really how I got into it. Well, Mark, needless great- to say, we are glad that you're on our team, on the team of the Democratic Party. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks yeah, for having Mark, me. This is great stuff. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, where, where can people follow you on Twitter? Uh, it's Mark, M-A-R-C-E-E-L-I-A-S. So it's Mark E. Elias, and it's Mark with a C. And then, Mark, can you also repeat that um, website that you mentioned earlier where you post some of your, um, some of your opinion about... Yes, it's it's democracydocket.com. And I post, if you want to ever follow any of the cases we have filed, the uh, cases we've won, you know, whatever, uh, it's all on there, as well as, you know, things I write about and and, uh, podcasts like this. Excellent. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. Thanks. For my partner in crime, Adrian Elrod, this is Doug Thornell. This has been uh, The Electables, and we'll catch you next time. Stay safe, stay healthy.